Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Bookburners, Season 4, Episode 17. One. So, it's war. You don't have to be so dramatic about it, Pavel, Gala said. What's that supposed to mean? That you're always dramatic about everything, Ingrid said. It's the end of the world. Not for us, citizens. Gala corrected. The Engstroms were eating again. A second late-night dinner. Unfinished plates lay scattered on the table around them. A roasted chicken with one leg gnawed sat smeared in sauce next to half a slab of pork loin with the fat eaten off it. A pile of vegetables in a dish grew colder by the minute. But the waitstaff was still bringing wine. Are you hungry? Gala asked the beast on the other side of the table. I eat every hundred years, the beast said, and exhaled. Ingrid caught a long, pungent whiff of liver. What did you say your name was again? Kel'jimux, the beast answered. Gala turned to Ingrid. And where did you find him? He came highly recommended, Ingrid said, a little too casually for Gala's taste. But she decided she would drop it. Gala turned back to the beast. You charge a lot for your services. In the world that is coming, Kelzimak said, you will learn just how flexible the definition of wealth is. I assume the deal is still on. Yes. Good. For centuries, I have dreamed of destroying a human institution like the Catholic Church. Pavel held up his hand for a high five. Ingrid rolled her eyes and answered it half-heartedly. Just to be clear, Gala said, we are not talking about the entire Catholic Church. Heljimak sighed, liver again. We are talking about the Vatican, more specifically a part of the Vatican. Fine, Heljimak said. It's just a first step. Agreed, 
When the new world comes, we will be able to destroy the entire church. And perhaps the very concept of church wholesale. Though I am disappointed that I'll have to share in the carnage with others. You talk a big game for one human-sized demon, Puffle said. I have colleagues. Which is exactly what we've hired you for, Gala said. Yes. So we're clear on our orders, demonic hyperbole aside. Target and infiltrate this society's librorum occultorum and destroy it, Kelsimak said. You make it sound so easy, Gala said. It is, Kelsimak said. When you have the right people. Kelsimax disappeared in an organ-scented mist. I take it that means he's on his way, Puffle said. Must be, Gala said. There were new guards at the Vatican, and more of them, Sal noticed, and their uniforms had changed, gotten a little more voluminous. She wondered if they were concealing weapons, and what kind of weapons they were concealing, if so. Maybe they were fighting fire with fire now. And just when Sal wasn't sure fighting was really the answer to all this. To the angstrom, sure, but to the world changing? We're here to see the Societis Librorum Ocutorum, Menchu stated to the guard who blocked him at the entrance. It felt strange to hear Menchu utter the words aloud. But now everything was out in the open, wasn't it? Cardinal Fox is expecting us. The guard glanced at each of their faces. Sal's, Liam's, Grace's, Manchu's, Asante's. There they were, the old team, now the book burners, a name they were still getting used to calling themselves, rather than having it hurled at them as an insult. We have each of you on file still. Welcome back, he said. Sal could tell it was a formality. The guard didn't mean it. He moved to accompany them to the entrance. We know the way, Manchu said. I know, the guard said. Let me escort you in. The first hall inside the Vatican was the same. Not a thing different. Sal had almost forgotten how beautiful it was. That beauty hit her all over again, compared to the chaos in London, the alleys she'd been running down lately. In that hall, it was possible to imagine that the Vatican could survive just about anything the world, earthbound or magical, threw its way. Or maybe, Sal thought. It will just be the last thing to go. An image settled in her head. Apocalypse meets Looney Tunes. There was St. Peter's Basilica, serene and unchanged, while the sky turned pink overhead. The land around it turned to soup and dropped away, and that tide rushed around the cathedral until there was only a mesa of land beneath the building, and space all around. Now that mesa eroded too, until, hat tip to Thomas Aquinas, the cathedral was balanced on a pinprick of land. Then that eroded too, and St. Peter's hovered impossibly in the air like wily E. Coyote for a good three seconds before tumbling out of sight. The guard opened the door to the spiral staircase to the archives, and down they all went. She could see Cardinal Fox waiting for them at the bottom, registered the distrust on his face. It hadn't been easy for Manchu to convince Fox that they needed to visit. 
Fox had insisted that the society only needed the warning that they might be targeted, and thank you very much. We want to help protect you, Manchu had said, and I know we've moved apart in all this, but our interests are more aligned than you might think. There are ways for us to work together. We have a lot to talk about. Fox had been only barely convinced. Sal wondered if he regretted even that now. Manchu, Fox said, you're looking well. Manchu, Manchu said. Come with me, Fox said, we'll talk privately. What about the rest of us, Asante said. I trust you still know where everything is, Fox said. Try not to destroy anything. Asante tried not to judge. All her acolytes seemed to have left after she did. A new staff walked the floor, and they kept everything so organized that Asante was pretty sure they weren't actually looking at any of it. The books and manuscripts she'd always had open or unrolled on her desk, the second tier of documents close at hand. These were all filed away. None of the flat surfaces seemed to have any work going on at them. It was an archive, after all, not a lending library. But the atmosphere reminded her just how much an archive could resemble a crypt if no one ever looked at the books. She didn't like the thought of all those words left to die and rot on the pages. Metaphorically, those words were alive to her. Some of them might be literally alive. They needed room to breathe sometimes, room to grow. I see you don't use the orb anymore. Asante said to the new archivist, who'd introduced himself as Udo. The device was covered with a tapestry, a few wayward books piled at its feet. With all the magic in the world now, it kept going off all the time, Udo said. It was a nuisance, and besides, magic isn't secret anymore. We don't need the orb, we have the news. Huh, Asante said. The mission has changed a lot, hasn't it? Yes, it has. So, what are you working on now? Udo grimaced. Work is uh, slow, he said. We have been exploring the collection as best we can, with the departure of your previous staff. And my notes? They were confiscated. I see. What about the notes of my predecessors? We have those, but with the gap between their nose and the present, there has been a lot to sort out. We've found your organizational system to be a little unorthodox. Asante said nothing to that. There has been something, however, Udo said. Let me introduce you to Daniel. He's one of our youngest people here, and is turning out to be very promising. He has been working on something that I have difficulty understanding, but maybe he can explain it to you. Danya was a pale, skinny man with big eyes and even bigger glasses, poring over a book while eating a pastry. Asante liked him immediately. Danya, Udo said, this is the former archivist, Asante. Danya seemed startled. I can't believe they let you back in here, Danya said. It is a real pleasure to meet you. Don't get too excited, Udo said. Can you leave us? Asante said. Udo looked to Danya, then to Asante, then to Danya again. Asante could tell Udo thought leaving them alone was a bad idea, but whatever debate raged in him was soon settled. I'll be back in a few minutes, he said and left. 
Daniel's voice dropped to a whisper. I have so many questions for you, he said. I don't know how many answers I have, she said with a chuckle. The controlled experiments you did here, Danya said. How did you contain them? I uh, didn't always, Asante said. I made mistakes. It helped to have good colleagues and a guardian angel. Perry, Daniel said. How do you know his name if all my notes are gone? I asked around. Good man. Is there any way for me to talk to him now? Asante felt a pang of sadness. I don't know that you could, she said. Perry was getting bad again, growing addled, a little too unpredictable. The fix she had tried wasn't sticking. They were losing him and they still didn't know why. It was right that Francis had decided to stay behind in London to look after him, but in a larger sense, they both should be here now. Something in the way she spoke appeared to communicate that to Daniel, to suggest that he let it go, and she was grateful that he seemed to pick up on this. She changed the subject. Udo said you had something you were working on? Yes, Daniel said. He grabbed a volume off the desk, a book written in three languages. On the nature of magic, Asante asked. I remember that one. Fifteenth century, a generalist's book. Yes, Daniel said. A rather crude attempt to construct a grand theory of magic based on evidence already centuries old itself. Not very reliable, but something in the formulation of the ideas in it rang true for me. I know your Greek is excellent, but did you know that the choice of words, nature, is a pun? The book isn't simply about the behavior of magic. It argues subtly that magic is, well, natural. I suspect the writer didn't come right out and say it because he would have been branded a heretic since magic to his colleagues is decidedly not natural. It would have been the devil's work. The saints get miracles, the damned get magic. Right, Asante said. But it seems relevant, especially in light of London. I was thinking specifically of how you awakened a river. Yes. In the context of the argument of this book, that struck me as ingenious. How so? Asante asked. Tanya smiled. And here I was thinking that I would be telling you something you already knew. It has occurred to me in listening to the way everyone here talks about magic, that we think of our magic problems as engineering problems. If there is a leak, the solution is to stop up the leak. The boy with his finger in the dike, Asante said. Yes, or the ways we dam up rivers when we don't like them wandering about on their floodplains from season to season. There are those who argue that those solutions are still temporary, that you create more problems than you solve. And the real permanent solution is to let the river wander around and don't live on the floodplain, Asante said. Or if you don't want your house to end up in the ocean, then don't live next to the ocean. But in this case, the floodplain or the coastline corresponds to reality as we know it. That was an imperfect example. It's more this. What if the solution is not to beat the magic back, to try to keep it out altogether, but to manage its flow, to accept and use it in some way, to achieve some kind of balance, to think less like an engineer and more like a naturalist? Huh, Asante said. That's very interesting.
She felt the sense of a final piece of a concept she'd been building in her mind clicking into place. A new way forward. New experiments leapt into her head, less about creating and using devices or summoning creatures from elsewhere, and more about learning how to make something grow and breathe here. It was still too vague for her to articulate it well, but her brain lit up with the promise of it. The chance to see it become real and know what it was. So you don't think I'm crazy? Danya said. No, Asante said. In fact, I'm considering recruiting you. I have another question for you about London. Go ahead. Do you like it there? Asante looked over her shoulder and saw that Udo was heading back to fetch her. She looked back at Danya and nodded. Then she had another thought, it grabbed a piece of paper on Danya's desk and wrote her cell phone number in the corner of it. We should talk more, not here, before I go, she said. She returned to find Sal, Grace, and Liam in a quiet conversation. Sal had her hand on Grace's back. Liam stood, arms crossed, listening. Look serious over here, Asante said. What were you talking about, Sal said. Saving the world, Asante said and laughed. You don't seem to be in the mood for jokes. Being here brings back some memories, Grace said, and it's more recent for me than you. Ah, Masanti said. I don't want to have another fight about it right now, Grace said. I know we haven't had time lately, but there's been no way to think about anything other than what's in front of us. You mean about finding a cure for you, Masanti said. Grace nodded. I think there's something I should show you. Kels Jamax had always enjoyed the view heading into Rome from its outskirts, even as it had changed over the centuries. Farms replaced groves of trees, tenements replaced farms. Parts of the city rose, while other parts remained the same. But Keljamax liked the view of Rome most of all when flames were involved. He still recalled with a deep sense of aesthetic contentment the fire that had consumed most of the city under Nero. Of the many burnings and looting since, the Visigoth invasion and the Holy Roman Empire sacking stood out in his mind as being especially fun. He was disappointed in the Allied bombing of Rome during World War II. There hadn't been nearly enough flames. Just as there wouldn't be enough this time around, because his assignment was so small. I'll just have to wait, he thought. Keljamax arrived at the warehouse owned by one of his human slaves, a man who exchanged with him his free will for great wealth, believing the deal to be metaphorical when it was not. He had asked that the warehouse be completely empty. To his dissatisfaction, he found a young man in the building, someone who must have broken in only a couple hours ago, huddled in a sleeping bag in the far corner of the expansive space. That was unacceptable. Kelchamax began by closing the distance between himself and the young man faster than any human ever could have, as a way to show the man what he was up against. Then Kelchamax showed the man his true face. The man started screaming, full-throated, high-pitched. Kelchamax really liked that part, but decided after a few seconds that he'd had enough. Kelchamax deployed the muscular arm that grew out of his mouth. It shot from his face into the young man's face. The claws dug into the young man's skull and popped the front of it off. The contents fell out. Keljamax retracted the arm, leapt forward, and ate the mess on the floor. 
He hadn't realized he was so hungry. So he ate half of the rest of the young man. He stopped when he hit the ridge of bone at the top of the pelvis. His hunger was sated. And besides, once the internal organs were gone, the rest was a little anticlimactic. He'd realized centuries ago that he disliked human leg meat. It was too tough for him. A little gamey. Keljamox licked his lips clean with his two tongues and turned back toward the door. He shook his head. Someone else should have been here by now. He would dock their pay a little, he decided, by forcing them to watch while he ate some of the human prey intended for them. He knew he wouldn't be out of line. For the chance to sack the Vatican, even if the flames wouldn't rise into the sky, as they did in Keljamox's favorite Roman memories, a little humiliation would be worth it. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So, Menchu said. So, echoed Fox. They were in the Cardinal's office, Fox seated behind his desk in a large leather chair, Menchu in front of it in a small wooden one. Dark oak paneling all around them. Books and scattered array of artifacts on the shelves. Manchu wasn't sure, but it looked to him like Fox's office was both sparser and more unkempt than it had been. You understand that I could have you and your friends arrested any time I like, Fox said. Of course, Manchu said. I trusted you wouldn't invite us just to entrap us. Fox shrugged. I'm not a Bond villain, he said. I don't consider you a villain at all, Manchu said. Yeah, there's something about this that stinks to me, Fox said. We are here now because we're following the advice of an oracle, 
The Oracle, Menchu said, at Delphi. Who told you to come here first? Then to go to the library at Alexandria. That's about right. Where there will be a battle of some sort. Yes, Menchu said. Fox took a deep breath. And you're just following these instructions. It's the best information we have, Menchu said. It's not information, it's a prophecy. Do I need to remind you how much the world has changed lately? Menchu said. It goes against every instinct I have to be using a prophecy culled from a magical source to direct my actions. I understand, Menchu said. Yet here we are. It's not how we do our work here, Fox said. Menchu could see how frustrated he was, yet also resigned. He was a practical man. He was coming around. How does the work go, Menchu said. It doesn't, Fox said. Not really. You know, I have a keen sense of the society's history, and I don't like hyperbole. But I'd suggest that today the organization is facing an existential crisis. What happened in London, what you did, I might add, though I know we're far beyond that now, from our perspective changed the situation dramatically enough that our mission doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. The Team One has become much more visible. They've become action figures, Menchu said. Without our permission, Fox stressed, though we have much more important problems to deal with. Which keeps Team Two busy enough. They've gone from trying to keep everything under wraps to having to explain what's going on on an almost daily basis. I see Sansoni on the news all the time, Menchu said. She's good at it. Though she doesn't like it very much, Fox said. She says she's more of a back office type. I suppose she is. And meanwhile, Fox said, since you left and took the book burners with you, we haven't really created a new Team 3. We have new people, but it's unclear what their mission is. To hunt down and contain magic, Fox started laughing. And if not that, well, then what? Well, Menchu said, that's why we're here. The work has changed. It's so much bigger now, bigger than what we could ever accomplish ourselves. Bigger even than what Team One can fight. But in another broader sense, I think the goal is the same. Which is? To preserve our sense of humanity, Menchu said. I've learned so much in the past couple years, and even more since London. Most of what I've learned is that it's not magic itself that is to be feared. Magic is, in one sense, simply change. Change that's faster and more sweeping than we're used to, change that leaves us scrambling to adapt, but it's not malevolent. Much of it doesn't have any intention at all, it just is. This is the kind of thinking that reminds me why you should be arrested, Fox said. Hear me out. Menchu said. What is to be feared, and what we can push against, is what some people are deciding to use magic for. The Engstroms, for example. We can talk about their use of magic and focus on that, but what we're really up against here is basic petty humanity. The ability of some people to decide to protect only themselves and who cares about anyone else. Yeah, I would say that to move toward that is to move away from humanity, to become inhuman in a deeper, more fundamental way than I have ever seen happen through magic. Fox's eyes narrowed. Go on, he said. 
The Ekstroms have responded to our changing world by deciding to throw it all away in exchange for their own safety, their own power. They built a small army around them to make it possible, and they're going after anyone they think will stand in their way. It started with the Maitress. It has come to us and to you. Which means, in a sense, that we already have the power they're seeking. If we work together, used it together, and by power, you mean magic? Fox said. Possibly. Uh, <laughs> that is where we disagree. But less so, since London. We're not as similar as you want us to be, Arturo, Fox said. We don't have to be to stop the Angstroms. We only have to agree to stop them, Manchu said. And then what? What comes after that? You mean, what do we do about the world? Manchu asked. Fox nodded. Can we worry about the Angstroms first? Manchu said. Fox looked at his desk. For a moment, Manchu thought he had lost him. Then Fox smiled. It's practical, the way you're thinking, Fox said without looking up. Unnecessary. You don't have to press your case so hard, Fox said. So we have an agreement? Provisionally, Fox said. Though I feel like I barely understand the man I'm making this deal with. What do you mean? Manchu said. Listen to yourself, Fox said. Magic is just a means to an end. Magic is just another state of being. Think about where you started. Think about where you were even when we first met. You've changed. I told you I've learned a lot, Manchu said. It's much more than that, Fox said. Do you even believe anymore? Manchu took a moment. Uh-huh. Fox said, there it is. No, Manchu said, it's not that I don't believe. In many ways, my faith is stronger than ever. Not only in the sense of believing in powers greater than us, but also in the deeper mysteries within them, the, the things we can't know or comprehend. I'm so much closer to accepting that. But I'm no longer sure that I'm on the right path in following my faith, wherever it's leading me. And that's why... Manchu took a deep breath. That's why I'm leaving the priesthood. I see, Fox said. What's your name? It's not that at all, Manchu said. I think I'm too old for that now. Nothing to confess, Fox said. If there was, would you absolve me? I think we both know each other a little too well for that, Fox said. He motioned to the cross around Manchu's neck. I see you still haven't taken that off, though. It was a gift from the maitress. An inheritance, Manchu said. Do you know what it's for? No, Manchu admitted. Not yet. His fingers rubbed the crucified Jesus' feet. Two. The first beast arrived as the blood in the corner that Kelchamox had missed began to dry. You are late. Kelshmach said. Time is meaningless to Arthgamal, Arthgamal said. But it has been a very long time since I've seen you. I don't understand what you mean, Arthgamal said, his anger rising. Kelshmach sighed. There was nothing for it, but the greeting Arthgamal had also demanded more than four centuries ago. Together, afterward, they had feasted upon the dead during the siege of Pyongyang. 
But before that, there was combat, and Arthgamal had been vicious. If they hadn't eaten together afterward, Keljamox might have doubted their friendship. Keljamox opened his mouth again and extended his arm. Arthgamal responded by peeling open the skin on his chest to reveal that the cavity itself was nothing more than a giant mouth, arrayed with five rows of jagged teeth. I know your taste, Arthgamal said. This, Keljamox knew, was as close to a pleasantry as Arthgamal was going to get. But if they were to work together today, Keljamox had to go through what was coming next. They closed on each other, sending drops of black blood flying to the warehouse floor as a few more of the creatures Keljamox had summoned arrived and gathered around them in a tight ring to cheer them on. What is this? Grace said. They tell me they haven't touched this room since we left, Asante said. It's not much, but I'll try to explain. She took an old key from her pocket, unlocked the door, and turned on the lights. The room was small and windowless. Books were piled on a desk in the corner, stacked on the floor. On a table were several metal and wooden devices that Grace couldn't make any sense of. It was hard to tell if they were even right side up. A few burn marks streaked the walls and spotted the ceiling. It looked, Grace thought, like the archives before they had ever been invaded. It was all Asante. What is this? Grace repeated. This, Asante said, is where I tried to find a cure for you. Grace was noticing more and more. Spots of wax on the desk, a bundle of strings on the table that she realized were untrimmed wicks. Asante said, at first it was a lot of reading, searching for similar cases. The general idea, a person's life tied to the fate of some object, something outside their body, shows up again and again. There were rumors of a Macedonian woman in the 17th century who didn't age, but then burst into flames in the market when lightning struck her house and it burned down. A man in Sri Lanka in the 18th century, they say, kept a chicken in a cage and brought it with him wherever he went. When the chicken got sick and died, he withered away not long after. There were others. None of them were ever cured. Liam was crouching over a large white blob of wax on the floor. Did you try to make another candle? Yes, Asante said. I thought that if I couldn't break the bond between you and the candle, it might work if I could just make replacements. Even just add more wax to the candle you had. I made magic candles of my own, candles that essentially did useless things. Candles that made pink flames, candles that hummed. Just something to test on. But trying to add wax to them never worked. Sometimes the candles exploded. Sometimes the magic just vanished when I tried. None of it was promising enough to make me think I had something worth testing on your candle. After that, it was mostly about trying to find a spell to undo what had been done, not to break the bond so much as reverse it. I know that's splitting hairs, but it was an important conceptual difference that for a while seemed like it might be fruitful. But I didn't get very far. And then, well, then other things took priority. How long was this going on? Grace said. For as long as I knew about you, Asante said. Grace was silent for a moment. 
I remember what I said about finding a cure for you, Asante said. I know what it sounded like then, that I only saw you as a weapon or a useful tool. I don't like how that conversation went. But I did try, Grace. I tried. I just failed. Why didn't you tell me, Grace said. I didn't want to get your hopes up. It seemed too cruel. Especially because I never really had anything to show for it. Even Perry didn't seem to know what to do. Grace shot a glance at Sal, who Grace knew was very good at hiding her feelings. It was something they had in common, something that in a strange way brought them closer together as two undemonstrative people who nonetheless wanted to show each other how they felt. Grace had learned with each day of their relationship how to pick up on Sal's most subtle gestures. This time, it wasn't anything specific. It was more vague, a change in the air around her. But Grace caught it. Speaking of things that couldn't be fixed, things that were getting worse, Sal was worried about Perry. Maybe more than she was when she first joined the team. Because then, Perry was simply missing, and it had been a case of finding him. Sal was a cop. She knew how to do that. There was a process to follow, skills she had to deploy. But now Perry was going missing again, except this time he was standing there right in front of her while he did it. She had called Francis to ask how he was. He seems content, Francis told her, which made Sal's stomach flip. Yesterday he'd made friends with an invisible centipede. He said he could hear music all the time, music like he hadn't heard for centuries. Wherever he was going, Sal couldn't follow. She didn't even know how to start looking. But everyone was looking at Grace now, all her friends. She looked around the room, at the untrimmed wicks, the melted wax, the burns on the walls, the books gathering dust. The evidence of failure, of precious hours wasted that could have been spent doing something else. In some ways, we all have candles, Grace thought. I've been going over this a lot, Grace said, figuring out how to use my time, how I want to live. And I realized something. The only thing that frightens me more than not having a lot of time left is having eternal life. Maybe for some people that thought is reassuring. To me, it seems, I don't know, boring, greedy. The time I've been given, it's enough. I've gotten to see the world. I've gotten to see the inside of a sea monster. And I'm lucky that I've gotten to spend so much of my time with all of you. She looked at Sal, especially you. No one said anything. Liam looked shocked. Wow, he said. And here I wasn't even sure you had feelings. Shut up, Grace said. Well, that's more like it, Liam said. I do hate waiting in lines, though, Grace said. Nobody likes waiting in lines, Liam said. You'll never get used to it. Asante was beaming. I know we're here for a reason, she said, but for me, at least part of the reason is my family. I'm supposed to see them tonight. I'd like all of you to join me. Where's Arturo? Probably being defrocked, Liam said. Somehow I don't think he'd mind, Sal said. A dozen beasts now assembled around Keljamax and Arthgamal, cheering them on as they finished their round of welcome fighting. Small pieces of both of them lay nearby, ripped off in the frenzy of combat, 
A few fingers, several teeth. It was nothing either of them couldn't grow back, Kelchamox thought, even as he once again questioned the convention they were enacting, wondering if it wasn't a little counterproductive to sap each other's strength this way, just in the name of tradition. But he knew he could never get Arthgamal to give up the old ways. And he loved the work Arthgamal did, loved the beasts he hired. Still, Kelchamox considered it a pleasant surprise when four men showed up. He guessed that they worked for his human slave. Maybe the neighbors had called because they'd seen something that frightened them, or maybe they'd heard the noise from the fight. It was good that they hadn't called the police. It made it all the easier to contain the incident. Arthgamal nodded at Kelchamox. They had done all the fighting they needed to do to show their mutual respect for one another. Then, as one, the beasts wheeled around to face the four men. Kelchamox was happy to see that the men were petrified. One wet himself, another one stumbled back toward the door. A third dropped to his knees. Only the fourth one didn't lose his head. He began talking to the beasts. Kelchamox didn't understand Italian, but he got the gist from the man's tone of voice. I'm not afraid of you. Whether or not it was true, Kelchamox admired him, but not enough to restrain himself from giving the order to the assembled beasts to rip the man apart. The other men were even easier prey, and as the beasts fell to their meal, Kelchamox's pride at having assembled a good team grew. Arthgamal was already halfway through eating the second man and had started from the legs. When he disconnected pelvis from spine, he looked up at Kelchamox and offered him the torso. Kelchamox was touched. It had been more than 400 years since Pyongyang, but Arthgamal remembered which parts Kelchamox liked best. Maybe time really was meaningless to him. So, are we ready? Kelchamox said. We are, Arthgamal said. Good, Kelchamox said. This was a mere prelude to the feast that is coming. Tonight, we gorge ourselves on Vatican flesh. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. I wish for death upon the Nova Alliance. We all have a choice, Peter Land. One wish. You killed my family. They killed mine. I must have vengeance before the guilt tears my soul apart. For ten years, I've been making the Alliance pay. The Trade Alliance Agreement could be the next best thing for civilization. I will not rest until I have obliterated the torpedoes You away. cannot undo the past, Dolian. You can only wish something new for the future. You can't kill her! But killing him won't do you no good! Stay out of this old man! Pete? Pete! The Nebulous Saga. Learn more at thenebulousaga.com. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber 
and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolihi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.